Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Today, we tackle some of the garden questions that have come in from around the country lately, such as how do you overwinter a pepper plant indoors? What are these new bugs on my tomato plants? And a question from a couple of months ago when we were all stifling in record-breaking heat. Are there any roses that can tolerate and grow in high temperatures? We get answers from two of my favorite Debbies, Master Rosarian Debbie Arrington and America's favorite retired college horticultural professor Debbie Flower. And we get pepper overwintering advice from a professional pepper grower, Dave DeWitt. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Let's go. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics podcast. As you know, there are a lot of ways to get your questions in. You can leave an audio question without making a phone call via SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash gardenbasics. Of course, you can always call or text us the question and maybe even text us in a picture. Call 916-292-8964, 916-292-8964. You can leave a question at our website, gardenbasics.net. And you can also email in your garden questions as well to fred at farmerfred.com with your questions and your pictures. And however you come in, please tell us where you are. Because all gardening is local. And today's question comes from Mystic Tudor. That's okay. You can call yourself whatever you want. Just tell us where you live. Mystic Tudor says, I live in the Mojave Desert of Southern California. Thank you for that. It's hot and dry here. I have a lot of sweet peppers in three-gallon smart pots. Today will be our first hard freeze, so I picked out my six favorite plants and brought them indoors. Problem is, I do this every year, and every year almost all of them die before the next spring. I don't trim them down to a bare stem like some folks suggest. Should I? I'm going to place them somewhere where they can get better sunlight this year in case that's the issue. My house stays between 50 and 70 all winter. I do slow my watering from daily to twice a week like my other house plants, but the soil stays moist without the 100-degree heat. Not sure what else to do. Thanks for your help. All right, well, thanks for that question, Mystic. Uh, we're going to hear from a professional pepper grower, Dave DeWitt, in a few minutes on this topic. And, uh, Mystic, you hit on one very noticeable trend online when it comes to answering the overwintering pepper questions. Uh, the answers are really all over the place. So before we get to Dave, let me add my thoughts on that ball of pepper puzzlement. First of all, I think you were leaning to answering your own questions correctly. The goal in this situation is to get the pepper to survive through the winter, not thrive, just just live. You don't want to be trying to encourage winter fruiting on a plant that's more at home in a much warmer climate. Also, water sparingly, maybe once every other week and allow that water to drain out. 
And don't fertilize at all. It's too much stress on the plant. Do give the plant some light from a south or west facing window if possible. Temperatures should not drop below 50 to 55 degrees. It looks like you're okay in that regard. But if it is a dark room, do what you're thinking and set up some grow lights or move it to where there's a window. For grow lights, there's a lot of inexpensive options available. All right, let's get to the hard stuff, though, on this. To prune or not prune that pepper plant before overwintering. Some say yes, prune it back to the main stem and a few laterals, maybe leave the plant about a foot or two high, if that, leaving about five to ten buds. The buds are located wherever you remove the leaves. Some growers will bring the plant in and let the leaves fall off naturally. I tend to think, though, that you can eliminate many hitchhiking pests by removing the leaves outdoors, then bring in the plant. Is that pepper plant in a container? Or is it in the ground before you bring it in? Well, based on what we've learned about the interaction of good soil microbes and existing soil, it might be better to bring in the containerized pepper plant with its current soil if it is free of pests and diseases and the plant was growing vigorously. Still, you'd want to remove the leaves. And before bringing it in, if uh, you're bringing it in in soil from outdoors, either in a pot or in the ground, rinse the plant thoroughly with lots of water, both sprayed on the plant itself as well as saturating and draining the soil. That'll dislodge any ants or other problematic insects before you bring it in. Now, do you need to repot in new soil before bringing it indoors? Uh, There's a lot of answers online that say, yes, give it new soil or sterilize the soil. Oh, man, that's a tough question. I would say if the pepper plant is in a pot and it's healthy, there's no sign of any soil-borne pests or diseases, bring it in the way it is after, of course, watering that soil thoroughly and draining it of uh, that ant farm you might find. And I'm going to differ with those who say if you're digging a plant out of the ground to clean off the roots of the plant and pot it up in new soil. Again, you're going to have to be wary of any soil-borne problems. But in either case, I would not wash off the soil that's clinging to the roots if you decide to bring in that plant and give it new soil. There's a lot of good microbes in that soil near the roots. Generally, though, if there's a problem lurking, you're going to see it on the underside of the leaves or in the top inch of soil. So scrape off that top inch of existing soil, remove the leaves outdoors, and then bring it in transplanted to a pot. Now, you might want to conduct your own science experiment on this. Bring in several pepper plants like you normally do in the wintertime, but use different combinations of pruning and potting for each plant and see who lives, not thrives, just lives through the winter. That's your goal. Now, there are a few misunderstandings surrounding the production in year two of overwintering pepper plants. Are they more productive in year two? Will they bear fruit earlier? Is it worth the hassle? For the answers to those questions, we turn to professional pepper grower Dave DeWitt. Talk a little bit about uh, something that you touched on, and it makes sense for people who want to uh, have a long-lasting hot pepper plant. You mentioned growing peppers in containers, and you mentioned the fact that in tropical areas, they they become trees, uh, they live through the winter. This is a good idea if people want to keep that hot pepper plant going is grow it in a container and then move it to a warm spot if they live in a cold winter area and then bring it back out again come spring. Yes, you can do that. And uh, most people say, well, there's not enough light. Well, you're not going to get 
fruits all year long. I have a greenhouse, so and I have tropical plants um, like hibiscus and so forth that I put on my patio during the summer, bring them in, um, and they all have to be pruned back. And, and chili plants are no exception to that. But, you know, if you if you take a chili plant that's in a container and put it outside during the summer and bring it back um, inside during the winter, it doesn't have to have all that much light. Put it in a su- southern exposed window and so forth like that. All you're trying to do is keep the plant alive. You're not trying to grow fruits because that'll come in the summer. Now, I'm sure there's some exceptions to the rule if, if you know, people have a really good greenhouse operation. The difference between summer light intensity and winter light intensity is incredible. You, you, you hardly even notice it for a plant. I'm telling you that it's just a complete difference. The, the way the sun is in the sky, you don't get the full intensity of, of the light like you do in the summertime. So, With the hot pepper plants that you've grown that you've overwintered, on in year number two, do you get hot peppers quicker? Uh, no, as a matter of fact, your yield would be less usually. Mm. Um, there's a certain, uh, even though these plants are perennials, they've been bred for so long to be annuals that the problem is uh, vigor and a lack of vigor uh, as the plant gets older. It seems like the larger the pod, the less vigor the plants have. The smaller potted plants, like if you're growing pecans or um, chiltepines or something like that, they seem to have more vigor as they as they grow older, but uh, the larger potted plants don't, like the New Mexico plant, uh, chilies and so forth, like that, lose vigor a lot. Okay, that's a that's a good tip. That uh, if you want to overwinter your uh, chili pepper plants, the smaller potted versions have a better chance for success in year two than uh, the larger potted varieties. Exactly. We've been talking with Dave DeWitt, author of several great pepper books like The Pepper Garden, The Hot Sauce Bible, The Chili Pepper Encyclopedia, The Spicy Food Lover's Bible, The Complete Chili Pepper Book. Dave, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Okay, Frank, good talking to you, as usual. I've told you about Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planters. They're sold worldwide. Smart Pots are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. They're BPA-free and lead-free, making them safe for growing vegetables and other edibles. Well, the folks at Smart Pots have added a new product to their lineup, perfect for building the healthiest soil imaginable for your garden. By composting, it's the Smart Pot Compost Sack, a large 100-gallon fabric bag that's lightweight yet extremely durable and lasts for years. It can hold 12 cubic feet of pure compost. This rugged fabric is entirely porous, containing many micropores that allow for air circulation and drainage. It's easy to start a compost pile with the Smart Pot Compost Sack. Just open the sack, set it on level ground, and start adding your compostable materials, grass clippings, vegetable peelings, coffee grounds, and more, as well as fallen leaves, straw, and shredded paper. Next, place the optional cover over the sack. That's all there is to it. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. You can find the location nearest you at their website, and you can buy it online from Smart Pots. 
Just visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your SmartPot order by using the coupon code FRED, F-R-E-D. Do it at checkout from the SmartPot store. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of SmartPot's lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers and their new compost sack. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount. It's SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. you're probably listening to this while wearing long pants, a long sleeve shirt, maybe a jacket, maybe earmuffs, but we're going to talk about roses for the heat. Because if you recall last summer, many people in the United States had record-breaking temperatures. And in many instances, it was the rose bushes that were most noticeably hit. So for planting your next year's garden, let's talk about the roses that can take the heat. We're here at Harvest Day. It's put on by the Sacramento County Master Gardeners here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. Big public event showcasing the beautiful gardens here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. There are practical gardens that can be applied to your own yard. If you ever get a chance to come to Harvest Day or one of the monthly workshops here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, you ought to do so because you're going to get a lot of good tips for your garden. We're talking roses with Debbie Arrington, Master Rosarian. She's answering rose and apparently tomato questions here today at the uh, Fair Oaks Horticulture Center during Harvest Day. And fortunately for us, it, well, it's still early morning when we're doing this recording, and it's not going to be fortunately as hot as it has been. But don't tell that to the roses on the south side of the house because they just seem to be suffering. Everybody in the United States is having unprecedented heat waves. So the question is, Debbie Arrington, which roses are best compatible with high heat situations? The roses that do best in high heat tend to be lighter colored roses. The darker roses, your red roses, they absorb all those sun rays and it just fries them to a crisp. And so you've probably seen uh, your red roses not looking very well this summer. Uh, Olympiad, Chrysler Imperial, Mr. Lincoln, um, all your classic reds, they, it's like they absorb all that, that extra heat and they just get fried. So it's the lighter colored roses that tend to do better, uh, such as, uh, your yellows and pinks. Now, a lot of yellows tend to fade in sun anyway. Um, but my yellows that I like best, uh, in high heat, and they're doing really fine this summer, um, are Julia Child and Shockwave. Those are two Floribunda, uh, roses. Um, Julia Child is uh, a beautiful butter yellow and it, and it tends not to fade. And because of the lighter color, it doesn't absorb as much heat. And it's, it seems to be holding up to the, to this hot summer just fine. And Shockwave is a brilliant, bright yellow that doesn't fade either. And, and both Julia and Shockwave have, have beautiful, bright green foliage that's disease-resistant and stays nice um, all summer long. So those, those are two uh, Floribundas I, I highly recommend for summer heat. Another Floribunda that looks fantastic uh, in uh, heat or cold and, and looks great this summer, it's the best-looking rose in my garden right now, is um, a Floribunda named Day. 
Daybreaker. And Daybreaker uh, gets its name because it looks like a, uh, a early dawn with different shades of orange and yellow and no two, two rose and pink and no two blooms are the same. They're, they're all very individual. And it also has very clean, bright green foliage. And it's, it's quite uh, heat resistant. Of the larger roses in my garden, well, the larger uh, hybrid teas, because the roses are bigger, they are suffering in this heat the most. Some of them seem to cope with the heat better than others. And the one that's doing best in my garden right now is an old timer. It's called First Prize. And it's um, a bright neon pink. It's a very, very bright pink, hot pink. But they're very big roses and they have a very nice form to them. And that one seems to be doing better than others. Also doing well are uh, the of the landscape roses, the shrub roses, uh, such as the Drift series. And those are roses that are uh, grown to stay close to the ground and be easy care. They're, they're, uh, they're self-cleaning, which means that uh, the blooms, once they're spent, just drop off so you don't have to deadhead them. And um, because they stay smaller and compact, uh, they aren't suffering in the heat as much as some others. Another good uh, landscape rose uh, is one called Home Run, and it's part of the Knockout series. So, you know, knockout, home run, it, you know, makes sense. Uh, and it is a, a single hot pink uh, rose. It has about five to six petals uh, with real pronounced gold stamens in the middle. It's blooming its little head off. It doesn't seem to mind the heat at all. And another good one is the one that is the favorite parking lot rose of California, Iceberg. And Iceberg is a, a old floribunda that's been around forever. But the white blooms uh, are resistant to heat and they're also resistant to pollution, which is why it's used so often in parking lots and uh, long roadways and things like that. But it's a it's a very uh, hardy rose and and the white stays uh, pretty clean too. A lot of white roses just look really crispy in high heat, but Iceberg seems to still stay its nice pristine white uh, no matter how hot it is. One miniature that is doing well in my yard in a very high heat situation is Joy and it, it's just doing fabulous. Can you think of any other miniatures that are good for high heat situations? Uh, Joy is doing really well in my garden too and and joy uh, for folks that aren't familiar with it uh, it's a kind of a, a creamy white with a, a purple pink edge it's got a pickety edge on it it's a real standout bloom uh, other miniatures that are doing well oh there's adisto uh, always does well in uh, my garden and adisto is actually i think it's a mini flora because it wasn't released as a mini flora but i think they changed it it's a, a pink and purple blend and it's it's well kind of on the reddish side even though it's a darker color, um, it seems to be doing okay. It's, it's coping with the heat well. And one that's a, it's a white and red blend, Baldo Viegas, named after our, our local uh, rose expert. And uh, that rose is, has found uh, fans nationwide. And it's a, a beautiful white and pink blend. Well, I know where I can get that, so that's not a problem. Uh, Whirlaway, it's a mini flora. It's a little white rose, and it's just perfect. It's a, a beautiful mini flora. So a mini flora is between a miniature and a floribunda, size-wise. So the blooms are about two inches across when they're open. Another good white uh, that's doing well in the heat is Innocence, uh, which is an old-time uh, white miniature. It's doing very well. A lot of good roses for the heat. You have to know uh, which ones. Debbie Arrington's been providing the name. She's a master rosarian, so I guess we will be leaning towards the lighter colored roses for those really hot situations. 
Well, ideally, roses like to be facing east. That way they get the morning sun, but then some afternoon shade. And that helps them, particularly here in Sacramento and other places where there's a lot of high heat, you know, as in Arizona and places all over the country right now. That way they get, you know, they enough sun to keep blooming. But when it's really, really hot, they get the shade they crave. That's right. Some of the roses have been acting very weird this year in the heat, like smaller flowers, for example. Well, we've had in California the driest year in recorded history. And that lack of groundwater has really had a cumulative effect on uh, any shrubs. And roses are, you know, they're shrubs. Um, and so this year, um, my roses are much smaller than usual, particularly my hybrid teas. And a lot of them are also uh, not... Uh, producing as many petals per flower. Ones that should have 30, 40 petals per flower are instead having 10 or 12 and look like a semi-double instead of a, a full rose. And this is all a result of not enough water and too much heat. Another thing that's happening to roses, and I get this question a lot, is why are there leaves coming out of the middle of the flower? Oh, yes. That happens when uh, plants are stressed. It's called fasciation, and it's a weird vegetative state that is caused by stress. And there is so much stress going on right now in plants' lives that we see this sort of weird growth coming out of the middle. In my garden, uh, Perfect Moment is the one that does it the most. And Perfect Moment is a, a older orange blend uh, hybrid tea. And it, it has these monster blooms that that look like they're from the Little Shop of Horrors. It's very strange stuff. You will also see that if a plant is exposed to Roundup, but it is more severe, and it's not just the one bloom. You'll see it all over uh, new growth on the plant. It will have very strange deformed growth. Roundup, just one name for any sort of herbicide that has the active ingredient glyphosate, and that's a whole show in itself. Is glyphosate damage on roses? That's another very common question we get. It's something that may not even manifest itself until months later and you may even forgot you were even spraying around the roses. They're hypersensitive and that can also be drift from somebody else's yard. Yeah, they, roses and, and glyphosate do not mix. Debbie Arrington, Master Rosarian, the proprietor, along with Kathy Morrison, of the Sacramento Digs Gardening blog. Debbie Arrington, thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll have a link to Sacramento Digs Gardening in today's show notes. The weather may not be perfect for outdoor gardening right now, but it's perfect for planning your 2023 garden. Now's the time to plan the what and the where of what you want to plant for the future. And to help you along, it pays to visit your favorite independently owned nursery on a regular basis throughout the fall and winter just to see what's new. And coming soon to that nursery near you is Dave Wilson Nursery's excellent lineup of farmer's market favorites, great-tasting, healthy fruit and nut varieties. They'll already be potted up and ready to be planted. And we're also talking about a great selection of antioxidant-rich fruits, such as blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, goji berries, grapes, kiwi, mulberries, gooseberries, figs, and pomegranates. Wholesale grower Dave Wilson Nursery has probably the best lineup of great-tasting fruit and nut trees of any grower in the United States. Find out more at their website, DaveWilson.com. And while you're there, check out all the videos they have on how to plant and grow all their delicious varieties of fruit and nut trees. Plus, at DaveWilson.com, you can find the nursery nearest you that carries Dave Wilson's plants. 
Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics Podcast. A lot of ways you can leave us a question. You can uh, call or text us at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. Go to our homepage, GardenBasics.net, and you can leave a question there. Email? Sure. Send it to Fred at FarmerFred.com. But one of my favorite ways for you to leave a question is to call us on the computer to speakpipe.com. You can leave an audio question without making a phone call. Just yell at your laptop or your smartphone. Speakpipe.com Garden Basics. Debbie Flower is here, America's favorite retired college horticultural professor to help us answer the questions and uh, clean up any mess I make. <laughs> Today, the question uh, comes from a local resident, a local gardener, and it, it's about a bug. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, hear what June has to say. Hi, Fred. My name is June. I live in Walnut Grove in the California Delta right outside Sacramento. Um, my question is about leaf-footed bugs. Um, I've been growing tomatoes in this area for probably seven years, and Never seen these before on my tomatoes, but this year they were absolutely overrun with leaf-footed bugs. Uh, my question has to do more with the next year. I'm afraid they're going to be overwintering on my property somewhere, and I'm going to have the same problem next year. If you could give some advice on how to deal with leaf-footed bugs, I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, June, for that question. And, Debbie, a leaf-footed bug is just like the name says. Yeah, it is. It's a true bug. And when you look at its legs, they have uh, look like they have some extra tissue, like they have a little piece of leaf on their legs. They're kind of lazy eaters. They hang out with their babies, and uh, they all hang out in one place on the plant and eat together. They lay eggs on plants, but also I've found the eggs on the wall of my house. Whoa. What do the eggs look like? They're sort of tan colored and they're all lined up in a row. Wow. That's well, that makes it easy to identify. Right. They are pretty distinctive to identify. They're they're nymphs. They don't have what we call complete metamorphosis. They just go through growth stages. They they're they come out of the egg as a young form and then they go through nymphal stages where they grow bigger and shed their skin and grow bigger and in the younger stages they can look sometimes like a beneficial insect but if you see them with their parents you know they're not yeah the beneficial that they look like in their juvenile stage would be the assassin bug and it's very subtle differences yeah between the two i guess we should point out about its feet it's only the the rear legs that have that uh, paddle like foot yes and that extra tissue, yeah. The good news is it doesn't help them swim. <laughs> no. Uh, not that I know of. You know, they, they might keep secrets. The damage they do, though, it seems to be fairly superficial unless they're on your pomegranates. And then they they can ruin that. They can destroy the fruit on that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a pomegranate. So uh, when they were in my garden, yes, I saw them around and... and uh, uh, in groups. And like I said, they're kind of lazy. They're pretty slow moving for the most part. So they were pretty easy to control manually. And by controlling them manually, you're not bringing in somebody named manually to do that, although that would be oh, nice if you're rich. that's a good idea, yeah. yeah. As long as he brought his own bucket with uh, soapy water. Exactly. And that's the easiest thing is to hand pick them because they don't fly away or jump up and run really fast. They're pretty easy for you to 
to handpick, although they, when they're frightened or stressed, can emit a kind of foul uh, smelling uh, chemical. So you might want to wear gloves and then have a container of soapy water. Uh, insects breathe through their skin. And so if you put them in soapy water, it, it clogs those breathing pores and they can't live anymore. It's kind of a cute little bug. You'll see it in today's <laughs> episode of what it looks like. Uh, the leaf-footed bug uh, does overwinter. And like uh, June says, yeah, it, it's a good idea to be aware that they just might be overwintering in your yard. Some of their uh, favorite uh, hiding places include wood piles, barns, palm fronds, citrus or juniper trees or under peeling bark or in tree cracks. Yeah. So all those little nooks and crannies that we kind of ignore. And June is right on the money in terms of worrying about next year. That's what she should be thinking about, especially this late in the season. If you live in a cold climate, this is why you don't have them. You live in a cold climate. Yes, the cold kills them. Yes. Right. But uh, in USDA Zone 9, and, and they are spreading throughout USDA Zone 9. Yeah, you want to look for them and uh, either squish them or put them in that bucket of soapy water. Right. Or prepare your garden for the beneficials. Well, we, they're beneficial to us that would harm the leaf-footed bug. Mm. So they have natural enemies. Uh, birds are a natural enemy of the leaf-footed bug, as are spiders. And then there are some of the very small insects, like the small wasps, that uh, lay their eggs inside the eggs of the leaf-footed bugs. And when the wasp eggs hatch inside the leaf-footed bug egg, they eat the leaf-footed bug embryo. It's not going to cause total control, but if you can invite the things that are going to uh, control the leaf-footed bugs for you into your garden, then you will have natural control. So I had a big infestation one year, just one year, and my property is surrounded by power lines on three sides, and birds sit up there. I can sit and watch them, and they will swoop down. They're not the high-tension ones. They're they're probably like the internet ones, the lower, the ones that are not so high on on the pole. And they swoop down and get something out of the garden. So another, if you don't have the power lines, uh, like I do in my urban setting, you can just put a nice tall, maybe one inch by one inch post in your garden. And the birds will sit on it looking for something to eat. So that's one way to get the birds in there. Another is to have things that they feed on naturally, like zinnias and flowers that invite both the birds and other beneficial insects. I'm still thinking about internet power lines. <laughs> they're not power lines, but they're, you know what I mean, <laughs> above ground internet access. Uh, some of the um, true bugs also go after the leaf-footed bug, and they need something to eat, so flowers attract them as well. The good bugs hotels, yeah. Yeah. You need them. And uh, I, I've seen your neighbor's yard, and no offense to your neighbors, but <laughs> they don't really do a lot of mowing of weeds. Yes. Yeah, so right now, it it is kind of cut down, but my neighbor has a large piece of property, and, and she's a full-time working single person. Right. So lots of things do... Overwinter in that garden. And I can tell when, when the grass has been high for a really long time because I will have a different pest population in my yard. Yeah. Yeah. The adults, when they start waking up in, in March or April, they, they're hungry. So they're going to go where there's food. And the first food source that has seeds is probably the weeds. Right. And off they go. And then they'll move into gardens, landscapes, uh, in search of early season fruit and a place to lay the eggs. Mm -hmm. And again, those eggs, uh, look like what? They are 
in a row. They were tan. Now, my house was tan, so I don't know if they change color. <laughs> Are they able to do that? Are they like an aphid? <laughs> they're, they're kind of rectangular. And I think in most cases they are tan. I don't think they change color. And they're in a row. So it's just a single row. It's not. It looks like a worm. It does look like a worm. Yeah. And I saw it on the side of my house and messed with it. I, I let it stay to see what would happen. I'm curious that way. Then I saw what it was. <laughs> and so I had that soapy water. And Did you get to see them being born? I No, I wasn't oh. there at the moment. That's always exciting. Yeah. The miracle of birth. Yeah. And then you stomp them. <laughs> oh, and for spiders, if you want to invite spiders into your yard, a, a very coarse mulch works very well. And I mulch my most, almost 100% of my yard is mulched with arborist chips. And that's great spider habitat. So, June, getting back to some strategies for controlling next year's possible population of the leaf-footed bug clear away any weedy areas uh, in late winter that are adjacent to uh, gardens or orchards and uh, check your pomegranates and, or if you have them. And this is something that should be a year-long avocation for any gardener, and that's cleanup. Just mm-hmm. pick up fallen fruit because those are wonderful winter hiding places for the bugs. Right. Right. And if you do have a pomegranate or if you do, again, have a large population or you see the beginnings of a large population next spring, floating row covers will help. Uh, so that excludes the bug from the plant it's trying to get onto and feed on. So uh, I don't know how big your pomegranate is, but if you choose to keep the bugs, the leaf-footed bugs out of the pomegranate, you can put a floating row cover all the way around. You're going to have to tie it at the trunk end. Another good habit to get into when you make a new planting, be it a cool season crop or a warm season crop, and you're planting from seed or very young transplants, is use a rose row cover. Protect mm-hmm. those young plants from uh, getting damaged by any sort of uh, voracious pest that might be around. Right. Insecticides should not be needed. You should be able to control them without the use of insecticides. So handpicking, creating the environment that attracts the beneficials, floating row covers over the plants that they are particularly interested in you have a thumb and index finger use it or pay your children you pay your children a nickel a bug <laughs> oh they'll, they'll look up from their phone and just shake their head and go back to their phone raise it <laughs> go back to it go to a dollar a bug if you have to but again they stink when, when yes, yeah. when they're stressed or frightened, yes. Another option, too, for control, if you do this early in the morning when they're not quite as active, is uh, dedicate a handheld vacuum to the task. I've never done that, but you do it, don't you? I have done it in the past, yes. And it's the suction. This is one of those little ones. The little Yeah, it's a little handheld, handheld. one, and as long as you're... Very good about cleaning out the bag that's inside. Okay. Uh, you'll be okay. The bag doesn't get all clogged and gooky. It, if you clean it every day, it's not a problem. Okay. If the, if the last thing you do when you're done is empty the bag that's inside that little hand vac, you're okay. Okay. And it's strong enough suction to get those puppies in there. That haven't run away. That haven't run away. Yeah, yeah that's uh, yeah. But you have to use it regularly, and uh, just like you found uh, the egg masses, you want to destroy those, and they're often on on the underside of leaves too. So look for that uh, long yellowish brownish worm on undersides of yeah, leaves. Yeah, rectangle with rectangular segments. It's the leaf-footed bug, a very popular bug 
among their own kind in USDA Zone 9. They love pomegranates, they love tomatoes, and a whole host of other uh, crops as well. So uh, get used to it. The good news, I, I think we should point this out, is that we have both had an infestation mm-hmm. in past years. And then for some reason, a year comes and there are none. And I that, have not had any since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, like you point out, the good guys, the birds, uh, the spiders, whatever, taking care of the problem. Or maybe we're just being more judicious about cleaning up our messes. Well, that's true. Fall sanitation is high on my list of things to do. All right. Leaf-footed bug. You can't control it. We'll have a link with more information, too, about controlling leaf-footed bugs in today's show notes. Debbie Flower, thanks for helping us out with the questions here. Oh, it's a pleasure, Fred. Fall and winter weather can be tough on your trees, especially when the wind, rain, and snow are at their peak. In bad weather, trees go boom. But it's possible to be a bit proactive and perhaps not have that tree branch or the entire tree fall onto your home, car, or garden. A thorough inspection of your trees now, before the big storms hit, might uncover some structural weaknesses in trees that you've never noticed before. What are the signs of a possible tree failure? We cover that in the latest Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter coming out November 11th. For current newsletter subscribers, look for Inspect Your Trees Now in the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. It's in your email. Or start a subscription. It's the free Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. Find a link in today's show notes or sign up at the link at our homepage, gardenbasics.net. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast comes out once a week on Fridays. Plus, the newsletter podcast that comes with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter continues, and that will also be released on Fridays. Both are free, and they're brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. The Garden Basics podcast is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes our homepage, gardenbasics.net. And that's where you can also sign up for the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast. That's Garden Basics. Basics.net, or you can use the links in today's show notes. And thank you so much for listening.